I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light On, Light Through, episode 111. That's 111. The title of this episode is Captain Phil and Paul Levinson, Part 2. Or it could be Captain Phil Interviews Paul Levinson, Part 2. And the reason why it's part two is you just heard part one a few days ago. And I'm probably setting some kind of record in terms of getting up a new podcast so quickly after the last podcast I posted. You know, I always say at the end of every podcast, and I'll be back here soon. And usually soon, sadly, can sometimes be as much as a few or more months. But I'm happy to say this is just a few or more days. And that's because Captain Phil again interviewed me on WUSB radio just the other day. And with one exception, a totally new set of topics, including Aretha Franklin, my novel Borrowed Tides, the Mars Society Convention on August 24th in Pasadena, where I'll be giving a talk about Mars and religion. We also talk here about Carl Sagan, David Kyle, and the one thing, sadly, we did talk about again is our president, Donald Trump. Almost unavoidable anytime you're having a conversation with any sentient being. Now, I told you last time who Captain Phil is. His full name is Phil Merkel. All I'll say now is that he is notorious, a bon vivant, and a great beacon in the science fiction world. Anyway, Enough of my introduction. Let's go right into the interview. You're listening to WSB Stony Brook, and I have Paul Levinson on the phone, and I'm just bringing him up now. Uh, Paul, hey. can you hear me? Yep, I hear you fine. Oh, that was that was the easiest transition I think I've ever done. Well, <laughs> was, everything is easy with me. That That is true. Everything is easy with you, my friend. <laughs> and uh, take care, Bam. Everybody, Bam, uh, Long Island Liberty with Bam. Uh, on Tuesdays, he gets here around 10 or so, 10, 10.30, and he's on till noon. And then uh, this is Jim Lynch's Progressive uh, Solutions with Captain Phil filling in. And my friend, Paul Levinson, uh, science fiction writer, uh, political commentator, and uh, all around, and man of mystery, and <laughs> all around great guys. And it is, oh, I must tell everyone, it is 1 o'clock, and you're listening to WUSB Stony Brook 90.1 FM and W297BM Stony Brook. 107.3. Um, I didn't have a lot of time to prepare, Paul, but uh, I thought we would just take a big swipe at a couple of big issues, but I just played Think by Aretha Franklin. Um, I thought we could uh, talk a little, bit, a little bit about Aretha Franklin and her impact, especially in the 60s and 70s. Um, uh, an amazing talent uh, that we lost, uh, but also uh, a woman who was greatly involved. Um, what say you, Mr. Levinson? I've loved her ever since uh, the 60s, loved her and her music. I mean, you mentioned Think, you just played it. That's really one of my three all-time favorite of her songs and all-time favorite songs 
in general, the other two, no surprise, uh, being respect and natural woman. And, and it's interesting to think about uh, natural woman versus respect and think, so, you know, they're very, very different fields, very, very different kinds of songs, uh, very different uh, topics. Uh, and it shows Aretha Franklin's range. And, you know, as we all know, she came from a gospel background. She was fabulous, you know, doing soul. But, you know, a song like Natural Woman is more than just soul. And, uh, you know, obviously it was written by uh, Carol King, uh, Jerry Goffin. And, uh, you know, so at most maybe it was white soul, but it was something really uh, different. And, uh, you know, back in the 1960s, it was really hard, and you know, I, I was a kid then, but I remember it very clearly. I loved music. I made a lot of music. I was constantly listening to it. But with uh, the combination of the British invasion, obviously led by the Beatles, and and Motown, and you know, their great artists, you know, ranging from the Supremes and Smokey Robinson, both as a as a writer and an artist, uh, the Four Tops, all that stuff. It was really uh, an amazing feat for anyone else to break in in any other way. And I remember the first time I took notice uh, of Aretha, I, I I thought of that right then and there, that here is uh, this woman with incredible talent, and. She was able, with that talent, to basically burst into the scene, bring back Atlantic Records, which of course had been one of the founding labels of soul music in the 50s, but Motown had uh, taken over that role almost completely uh, by the, by the mid-60s, uh, Atlantic Records in the 50s. And, and here Aretha comes back uh, on Atlantic Records with this extraordinary string of hits. Uh, and by the way, brilliant lyrics, uh, you know, I, I, she didn't write, you know, all those songs by any means. I was Respect uh, was written by Otis Redding, and as I mentioned, a Natural Woman by uh, Carol King and Jerry Goffin. But wow, I mean, th that's something else uh, that she really brought out. She could take someone else's song and indelibly stamp her sound on it. And as far as, you know, what she did politically, you, you know, you, you hear this and heard this in the last uh, week all over the place. She uh, took her role as a popular icon very seriously, and that's why uh, she was there at Barack Obama's inauguration wearing that incredible hat. And uh, I was almost tempted to wear that a hat like that myself. I thought that hat looked so good. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, the Reverend Al Sharpton here in New York talks a lot about how, you know, she was always there. She, she didn't usually want to come out on marches, but she was always there with financial support, with moral support, behind the scenes. Uh, and again, this went back to the 1960s and Martin Luther King. So she really was a, a remarkable woman, and I also would also mention, you know, in terms of people who say uh, she was, uh, you know, the, the greatest voice of the 20th century, uh, and I heard someone uh, compare her to Whitney Houston, and made it, and this comparison makes an important point. Whitney Houston was a virtuoso in terms of, you know, really carefully hitting well-orchestrated notes and performances. She had a great voice, 
But Aretha Franklin wasn't that kind of singer. She just sang from the heart. She just sang what felt right to her. And uh, it obviously not only felt right to her, but uh, the, the whole world. So, you know, nowadays, and it's probably a reflection of my age, <laughs> when I hear that a person, you know, passes on at 76, it, it really feels way too young to me, you know? Yeah, uh, she I She's lived another 20 years, so... But she certainly gave a thousand times in the years that she lived to the world that most people give in their own lifetime. Yeah, I, I, I actually want to... Um, and uh, um, I actually have, like, a, something uh, that Andrew uh, Aiden wrote... Uh, on the occasion of Aretha's uh, death. And I was going to read it before you came on, but we were running late with the NASA scientists. We all got excited in here. We had a real NASA <laughs> uh, space astrophysicist here uh, calling in, so we got a little we got a little uh, nerded, nerded up in it. But uh, if you'll indulge me, Paul, sure. if you have the time, um, this is uh, Andrew Aiden, August 16th. Uh, Andrew Aiden uh, is the congressional aide to um, Representative John Lewis and responsible for the graphic novel March. Mm -hmm. So he says, Aretha Franklin was the soundtrack of my childhood. Mama introduced her with a well-worn cassette perpetually lodged in the tape deck of her 1980 Volvo DL. When we rode in the car, it was the only thing we listened to. On our way to the grocery store or four hours of highway driving to Grandma's house, we listened to Aretha. When I got older, I could tell Mama was in a good mood when I came home from school and heard the old tape playing in the kitchen, having moved after the Volvo days were numbered. I can remember pushing open the front door of the house after carpool dropped me off and hearing Aretha's voice wave from the kitchen like the smell of delicious food. When I was writing March, I put together the scene of Aretha Franklin singing at the inauguration for Mama. Mapping out the flashback scenes, there was never a question. Aretha had to be there, and her scene had to mean something powerful and important. You know Aretha might actually see it, Mama warned. I never heard if she did. And then he goes on to talk about his mother uh, passing away in hospice, uh, listening to that cassette, listening to that cassette of Aretha Franklin. I'm not going to read the rest of it. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a scene in uh, the graphic novel March and uh, the first book uh, that takes place at Obama's inauguration with Aretha Franklin singing, not the Star Spangled Banner, My Country Tis of Thee. Paul, can you talk to the fact why she chose My Country Tis of Thee over the Star Spangled Banner? Well, because, I mean, look, the Star Spangled Banner, you know, it sounds, it, it, it's almost like ridiculous to critique, you know, the national anthem, uh, because, it, it, you know, obviously it has such a history. But let's face it, it, it's glorifying violence, right? It's glorifying war. You know, the rocket's red glare. You know, okay, if they're used on the side of breaking away, you know, from England and establishing our freedom and, you know, the War of 1812 beating off England again, all right, fine. I mean, uh, that, that's worth commemorating. But My Country Tis of Thee is a much more profound and important song uh, because it is showing what America means, you know, a land of freedom. You know, let freedom ring. I mean, is is just uh, the the essence of America, which uh, again, not to get into Trump, but you can't avoid him uh, nowadays. Uh, that's what he's systematically stomping on and setting out to destroy in many ways. And 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 my country, you know, tis of these a beautiful statement against that. I I, I want to just say though two other things. Uh, you know, before we move on, you know, to, to other things. One is. 
because Absolutely. I, Go ahead. yeah, I love uh, the, in the piece you read that he's you know having Aretha's voice in his head and her performance in his mind when he's writing his scenes. And the reason I love that, like most things, is it, it, it feels like exactly what I do when I write fiction. I have never written a piece of fiction of any kind, short story or novel or anything in between, without one song and often more songs in my head as I write. It's an essential part of the writing process. Uh, and so, you know, it's just a question of what song it is. Uh, and it shows me that this guy is, is a, a true writer. The other thing I just want to mention for great uh, deconstruction of, of some of Aretha's lyrics and a great piece in general, I'd recommend Rob Sheffield's piece on Aretha Franklin, also written uh, last week for Rolling Stone. Uh, he, by the way, Rob Sheffield's written a brilliant book, Dreaming the Beatles, and he brings the same, you know, perception, uh, you know, behind the, the scenes. Uh, you, you know the line, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what yeah. it means, you know, TCB taking care, of, taking care of business and all that stuff, and he basically has a theory as to what those letters mean that Aretha chose, uh, taking care of TCB. Uh, most people think it's like taking care of business to take care of business, but Sheffield has another explanation. So I, I, uh, I heartily recommend that, and, and I think Aretha is going to be with us, not just for decades, I think forever. There, there are certain artists, you know, the B Beatles clearly made that uh, leap. Uh, Aretha is in that as well. She'll be listened to not just 10, 15, 20 years from now, but 10, 15, 20,000 centuries from now, assuming there's still a human race, which I'm an optimist, I think there will be, and apropos your NASA scientist, <laughs> not just here on Earth, but out there in the universe. <laughs> I, and let me describe the. It's a graphic novel, and I and I I've called up the image of of the scene of Aretha singing "My Country Tis of Thee," and orbiting around her. This is the great thing about graphic novels and comic books. She's singing there to the the the, the largest crowd ever assembled for <laughs> yeah. presidential inauguration. <laughs> but around her, orbiting her, are other panels from prior scenes in the story of March. You know, a little boy who's being dragged away. Um, a man um, holding a baseball bat uh, to to an African American man, um, angrily grabbing his collar. A policeman just standing by and doing nothing, smoking a cigarette. You know, somebody laying on the ground. That's what's orbiting in this thing. That's the power of the graphic novel. So uh, go check that out. And uh, I will. I but will. Uh, absolutely amazing thing. Um, and uh, yeah, I was I was glad. I was thinking it was it was cool to bring you on. Um, and talk about Aretha because of your music background as well. Uh, before we get into uh, the church and politics, I do want to talk to you uh, slightly about uh, Borrowed Tides because I have a, uh, a Facebook friend who went and and listened to the podcast. <laughs> uh -huh. So he, he went and re-listened to... Um, um, our interview, which was yeah, which was uh, the last time uh, you called in, and that would be a uh, Will White, and Will says um, he says he doesn't know why you don't promote Borrowed Tides as it's wicked cool. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> wait, wait, wait! I'm not done. And, hang on, hang on. It, and it's the intro. It's his intro. It's Will, it's Will's intro to your work, and he's been reading your work ever since. And he writes. 
in a retro pulp style. It's the tale of the first interstellar trip to Alpha Centauri. He thinks cool characters, including an anthropologist, into Native American myth and a cool Vincent DeFate cover adding to the retro space opera vibe. Uh, Paul, before we get serious, or maybe we're getting serious right now, let's talk Borrowed Tides. Well, listen, I, you know, I, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but uh, shortly after it was published, um, a, a review came out and said, I only had one other novel, by the way, published, The Silk Code, Bartos, my second novel, but some reviewer came out and said, this is uh, Paul Levinson's worst novel. And, uh, you know, I of, course, I, of course, took exception to that because I don't have a worse novel. And, and I remember uh, Shane Turtlot, an analog writer, and I were at a conference. I was basically bemoaning the fact that, <laughs> that Bartos was denounced. Uh, and there are a lot of negative reviews out there, and I'll tell you why in a second. And and, and Shane pointed out to me. He says, "Well, look, everybody has to have a worse novel. What do you, you know? Don't be so upset." Uh, I said, "Well, I know, but I, I, you know, I, I'm not everybody. I don't think I have a worse novel." I, I think what happened with Borrow Tides, and by the way, uh, here's you know a response to Will. I'm not only going to be promoting Borrow Tides. I have a sequel uh, that I'm writing to it uh, next, and I can't give you any more details. I am in talk with a small record label to uh, uh, come out with a new album. Uh, you know, th this will be, you know, not twi Twice Upon a Rhyme. They're, they're going to reissue Twice Upon a Rhyme, and I'm going to come out with a new album, and all the songs are going to have a science fictional theme, including a song called Alpha Centauri, which I very much wrote with Borrow Tides in mind. Um, but um, I, I think the, the problem and the reason why it didn't receive all that much attention, uh, and, and even David Hartwell, my editor at Tor, you know, paid me this left-handed compliment. I mean, he, he bought the novel and Tor published it, but he, and without giving too much away, there's a scene near the end of the novel, and he said, it wasn't worth reading the novel until you got to that scene. And that made it all worthwhile. So I said, okay, thanks a lot. I thought it was worthwhile reading the novel from page one, but that's okay. But anyway, I, I think the, the problem that it ran into, I mean, and it's a perennial problem, is the difference between science fiction and science fantasy. And the, the, the difference being that science fiction has plausible science, and science fantasy it, there's still science in there, but there are a lot of leaps that are not necessarily supported by science. So I don't want to give too much away about Bartosz, because I'm sure many of you listeners, maybe most of you listeners haven't read it, but there's a lot of... Uh, strictly science fictional material in Borrowed Tides, but mixed in there uh, are all kinds of things. I, I, and I'll just give you one uh, example, and this is not scientifically supported, but it certainly seems scientifically plausible. Quantum mechanics, you know, as I'm sure most people know, uh, at least one of its main and most popular interpretations argues that just observing and by extension even thinking about a subatomic particle can change its speed and its physical location. 
So it's literally th this quantum mechanical interpretation, mind over matter. And to some extent, Niels Bohr and the Copenhagen interpretation, as it's called, uh, and this goes back to the 1930s, and Einstein rejected this. He didn't agree with it, but a lot of uh, physicists did and still do, uh, argue that, that on, on this subatomic uh, quantum mechanical level, the, the power of mentality, observation, and, and even just thinking about things can actually move these tiny particles. I admit it sounds preposterous, but there it is. That is a, a scientific theory. One of the things I do in Borrow Tides is move this up to a macro level, so that, that by thinking about things, you can actually move objects that are a lot bigger than subatomic particles. So, you know, if you are a stickler for strictly, uh, fully corroborated, empirically demonstrated uh, science fiction that is based on uh, empirically demonstrated science, then, then that's why you could have a problem with borrowed touch. But otherwise, I, you know, uh, I love Bartizan, and I'll tell you something else. It just so happens, today is Tuesday. On Friday morning, I'll be out in Pasadena, California at the Mars Society Convention on a panel talking about Mars and religion. Uh, and th that's a long story in itself, but I'll just tell you briefly, m my position there is that what has been missing in the motive to get us off this planet, it, we've had military motive, we've had financial motives, uh, we've had scientific motives, but, but in some ways the most profound motive of all is to find out who we are, what we're doing in this universe. And religion, and I'm not talking about any particular religion, any specific religion, I'm saying the religious impulse in general, at its best, is to some extent aimed at that question. Anyway, the guy who was organizing this panel, the Reverend James Heiser, turns out, I met him at a Mars Society convention uh, panel two years ago, it turns out he is a huge fan of borrowed tides. And he said to me two years ago, when are you going to write, uh, when are you going to publish the sequel? So this is sort of interesting. I'm a great believer in these confluences. J James Heiser, uh, you know, on Friday is going to be talking in my ear about borrowed tides. Now you told me Will White loves it. <laughs> So hey, it's a groundswell. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That's uh that's crazy awesome, my friend. And and I kept thinking about the Arthur C. Clarke famous quote, you know. Um the yeah, the difference between uh, you know, um, what is it was if you don't understand, you know, right, magic and science. Yeah, with magic yeah. and science, which I'm mur right. I'm murdering right now. Um, no, no, well, I don't remember it either, but basically, you know, uh if you if you can't understand how it works, it's magic. That's you know, even though it happens. Any you know, sufficiently it. advanced technology right. is indistinguishable to magic. That's right. Yeah, and uh um, and I prefer also the Paul Simons version, which is, these are the days of miracle and wonders. This is the long-distance call, you know. Oh, I, I love that song. I love that. Yeah, you know. Miracle and wonders. <laughs> We're going to see Paul Simon, my wife and I, uh, just in a couple of weeks. I'm sad that he's, you know, giving up touring, but we're going to go. We're going to see him out in uh, New Jersey. Oh, cool. Central Center, yeah. Well, it was interesting um, when you were talking about moving things on the quantum level and borrowed tides is moving things on the on the macro level and, and how, um, you know, uh, there would be a religious motivation to, um, 
to uh, go into space, a spiritual um, sort of motivation. It reminds me of the wonderful ending to the movie Contact in the book Contact by Carl Sagan where uh, Jodie Foster's character um, is that empirical scientist who refuses to believe uh, in religion, it's all fairy, and then she is put into a position where she has to convince the rest of the world what happens to her when she encounters the alien civilization has to be taken on faith. <laughs> mm -hmm. well, absolutely. Look, uh, the fact of the matter is the, the, the great philosophers, George Santayana, Karl Popper, uh, all realized that you cannot provide even a rational explanation for why you should uh, be rational. The reason is is, is that... That's what my wife of, says about me, Paul. Well, yeah, my <laughs> wife says about me, too. But, but uh, I think wife said to say that. But, uh, but basically, because it, 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 any, any explanation you give on behalf of rationality is going to appeal to rationality, and so th that's known as a tautology in philosophy. You're using the very thing that you want to prove is valid to demonstrate that it's valid. So that's why, you know, uh, George Santayana talked about an irrational faith uh, in reason, uh, and, and other, other people did too. By the way, uh, I think that Carl Sagan is, as much as he's been heralded, hasn't been heralded enough. And he did, a, and this gets back again to us getting out into space. His appearances on television. Uh, even on the Johnny Carson show, were among the most inspiring things of the uh, 60s and 70s. And another reason why it's been so hard uh, for us to get off this planet, and, you know, a lot of people are trying, you know, obviously SpaceX and Richard Branson and, you know, lots of uh, organizations for that matter, you know, Jeff Bezos and, and Apple, they all have projects. But... Um, when Carl Sagan passed away, we lost the leading voice, and, and no one has really uh, stepped up to replace him. Yeah, yeah, and, and that is a shame. And, and, and uh, yeah, it is, it is, and, and it's just, and, and when he did the original Cosmos, it's, it's mm -hmm. so much, it's so much of a, sorry, I, was, I, I let myself uh, pot it down a little bit. Um, it's so much of a um, spiritual journey as well as an intellectual journey, you know, and I okay. use the term spiritual very loosely. Um, but you watch that, and he and he's walking on the beach, and this is something that a child can understand. And it's such a gift to be able to do that. So what Paul and I are saying is, those of you out there in Radioland who are listening, um, it's been a very spacey uh, progressive solution so far today. So go to your local library or your local streaming service and uh, sit down and watch all the episodes of Carl Sagan's Cosmos. You know, and uh, and and just get into the groove. I, I love when he nerds out about Mars that it's not um, the Barsoom. You know, I love that's that right. that section of it. It's, it. It brings yeah. a tear to my eye that right. that yeah. when he was talking about the first lander on Mars back in the seventies, and there were there were no thoats, you know, that's there were right. no princesses. There was just red sand. That's right. <laughs> um, I thought we could spend a couple of minutes talking about. Um, Security clearances being revoked <laughs> and tweeting about that. Um, there's just some things that, that just seem to be popping out that don't need to be out there. We don't need to be hearing this stuff. And and this is one of them. And, and criticizing a CIA director and criticizing any 
federal agents and CIA agents I, by by a president is is like touching the third rail. I mean, who does that? Who, who does that? That's that beyond belief. These these are men and women who who have given their lives for the country. That's right. That's put right. themselves in, 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 in the face of danger daily. And, and even the firefighters out in California, it's a similar thing, making making fun of that tragedy. Yep. Um, these are men and women who are like dying and he sits back there and pops off these snarky tweets. Um, but let's focus on on uh, Brennan. So um, yeah. <laughs> what say you, Paul? Well, a couple of things. First, I just want to say, you, you and I talked last time about whether or not uh, what Trump did in his meeting and in the immediate aftermath with Putin was treason. And uh, obviously, you may recall, that came from uh, John Brennan, who said he thought it was treasonous, <laughs> what Trump did. And that's one of the reasons I'm sure why Trump evoked his clearance. So again, I just want to reiterate, I actually don't think that what Trump did was treasonous. And I, I couldn't remember his name last time, but I, I, I was saying the same thing about what Edward Snowden did. Yes. You're releasing some information. Treason is when you are at war with a country and you give them information which, you know, can result in the loss of lives, you know, to, to your side in the battle. Treason is not, you know, praising someone that you are in a severe competition with, but the last time I checked, we weren't actually at war with Russia. So, actually, as a, as a point of fact, I disagreed with Brennan and, and that assessment. But, Trump's taking away his security clearance. This points to a very, very important issue, which has emerged really for the first time with Trump. And the issue is, the president has all kinds of powers. And who knows why he was given those powers. Uh, these powers are so profound that even aside from the revocation of uh, security clearances, as we know, the president can pardon people, uh, and no one can challenge that. The president's pardons are absolute. And so right now, literally this afternoon, the jury, who knows what it will come down with, what its verdict will be, but it might well, you know, be finding Paul Manafort guilty. So you know what? Trump, five minutes later, can pardon Paul Manafort. And presidents have had that power. And presidents have had the power to revoke security clearances. With Donald Trump, for the first time, I mean, to some extent we had it a little bit with Nixon, but never like this, uh, we're beginning to realize that all the powers that the president has, maybe it's not such a good idea. Maybe it's not such a good idea for presidents to have such absolute power to pardon someone, for presidents to have such absolute power to revoke the security clearance. Because, I mean, the reason that these security clearances are not revoked is that it's important to bring these people in, these minds in, should a national security crisis emerge, you know, or an international security crisis. And by revoking them, what Trump has done, you know, in the case of Brennan, and if he does it with more people, is literally impoverish the think tank, the de facto think tank that would be available to be called in if some kind of crisis uh, happens. So no one has abused this power up until now. And, you know, no one has much abused the pardon power up until now. But, you know, Another aspect of this is, you know, I hate to say it sounds crazy, but 
compared to Trump, Nixon was a gentleman, right? He resigned, you know, when he saw what was going on. I guarantee you Trump is not going to resign. God knows what he's going to do if things get worse. And with a Republican-controlled Senate and House right now, and that's why, again, we talked about this last time as well, the best that any progressive can do is get out there and work to the utmost to get Democrats, uh, not that I love everything that Democrats do, but get them in the House, get them in the Senate, where at least there can be some more of a check on, on Trump, because, you know, to me, the worst thing about the revocation of these security clearances are it shows the combination of the absolute power that a president has and then what happens when someone like Trump is in the White House exercising that power. That is a, a very, very dangerous situation. And I think the law needs to be changed uh, to, uh, you know, m make sure that this doesn't happen again. And, and until Trump is out of the White House, we are in a very precarious situation. And, uh, and frankly, Pence is, is no bargain either. I mean, I don't know what he would have done in this situation. Uh, so, you know, if we're in a really dangerous situation now, and uh, we just have to both hope for the best, speak out against Trump, which means speaking out just about every minute of every day, and, uh, you know, work as hard as we can to, to get Democrats uh, in control of the House and the Senate. And, and along those lines, um, a lot of midterms, I mean, a lot of primaries have happened uh, in the last couple of weeks. How are things looking? Uh, is there a trend? Do you see a trend? Yeah, well, look, it looks good now, but you and I both know that, uh, what is this, like 70-some-odd days until November yeah, yeah. In the election, and, uh, you know, I remember what happened in 2016. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you know, I, I, we can't uh, at all say, oh, okay, it looks good, there's going to be a blue wave. You know, basically, you know, the Democrats are coming out in more numbers. I mean, we're, in the last couple of days, I've been increasingly hearing an odd thing that the you know the the various professional polling operations are saying the Democrats look likely to take back the House, but the Republicans will gain more seats in the Senate. Uh, you know what? I don't want that to happen. Meaning, I want the Democrats to regain the House, but I we we got to get the Democrats back in control in the Senate too, because look, otherwise we're going to have Trump's he Trump's appointee to the Supreme Court may be. Uh, ratified by the Senate anyway, and let somehow enough Republicans join the Democrats and stop it. But if Trump is in the White House for another two years, uh, listen, you know, no, no one is, uh, n none of the progressives on the court are all that young. You know, life is uh, something that is unpredictable and tenuous and precarious especially the older you get. And terrifying. Uh, yes, and terrifying. And, and we, we need to get control of the Senate also. I, I, you know, I would be very happy if Democrats you know, got control of the House. That would be great and a lot better than now. But uh, it would be a really mixed bag and a bitter pill to swallow along with that honey if somehow the Republicans got more control of the Senate. So, uh, you know... Again, I'm no expert in politics, but I just hope the Democrats are, are doing everything they can in, in any close state to, uh, to, to basically in, improve their situation in the Senate. Well, Paul, um, 
I I have made you work for your lunch today, <laughs> and, <laughs> and and I appreciate so much. Uh, you're calling in and having a good science fiction nerdy time in the beginning and then, of course, transitioning into these two really important uh, topics as well, as well as the first thing we were talking about. Please tell everyone how they can find you on the World Wide Web, Paul. All right, so here are several easy ways. At Paul Lev, P-A-U-L-L-E-V, that's me on Twitter. And if you follow me and you don't look like a complete lunatic, a partial <laughs> lunatic is okay, I'll probably follow you back. So, uh, <laughs> and then my blog where I review science fiction, I review mystery, I throw in some music reviews, you'll find some politics there. The easiest way of getting there is paullevinson.net. And remember, that's two L's, P-A-U-L-L-E-V-I-N-S-O-N. Dot net and you know if, if you do those two things i'm sure you'll get sick and tired of me pretty quickly and we can pick up a borrowed tides <laughs> yes that's right uh, i don't, hey, think, I don't we, think will has bought all the copies himself so we can pick up <laughs> borrowed tides uh, what's the best place to get a copy of borrowed tides amazon Yes, and in fact, on Amazon, you can get bar tides in a variety of ways. You can get it in Kindle, so you can read it immediately. You can get it in trade paper. A new edition came out about a year ago. And you can get a paperback, a, a, a mass market little paperback, which was the original publication by Tor back in 2001 or 2002. They're all available on Amazon. Uh, and hey, if you have any questions about the book or anything you want to say, tweet to me and I promise I'll answer you. Immediately, yeah, at and, the and speed of light. At the speed of light, and I'm so yeah. I'm so happy you enjoyed uh, uh, Will's Will's uh, uh, questions and comments on the book. I, it was I could I could hear your your I can hear it in your voice that you really dug that. So uh, so thank I'm you. I'm going to hire him as a publisher. Yeah, he was great. <laughs> Be a great guy, <laughs> yeah. and and it's always good to have listeners too. So it's nice to have him here as a listener as well, and uh, and then hanging out with me. Um, so uh, Paul, I'm going to. Uh, this has been fantastic. I've kept you on about 45 minutes here. I'm going to say my goodbyes, but uh, before I do, um, any conventions in the local uh, Long Island area coming up for you in the near future? No, I mean, and I'll be if invited, I'll go. But my, the, the, the new, the, let's see. Here's what's happening, science fiction wise. Uh, I think like like I don't know, like September 14th or something, sometime around there. I'm going up to Toronto uh, for a launch party for the new Amazing Stories, which has my right, short right. story in there. So I'll be there, and then I am definitely going to go to PhilCon. Uh, that's going to be in early November. So I was just going to yeah, I was just going to yeah. say, uh, uh, are you going to PhilCon? Because that's sort of in our area. I mean, that's that's that's, right. that's not a very long drive from Suffolk County. It's that's not right. actually held in Philadelphia. It's held in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. That's so, right. So uh, so you can you can meet Paul in person and tell him you heard him on Captain Phil's Planet. That's and, right. Uh, and it's named after you. It's na it is named after me. <laughs> <laughs> or I'm named after it because I think the first <laughs> the first Phil Concate was uh, happened in 1936. Correct. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. They're the oldest science fiction convention. The oldest, and that was just two fans taking a trained to me. I love it. That's right. <laughs> they called that a, that was a science fiction convention in 1936. That's right. Uh, yeah, brought together by the the the, the great editor of uh, the original editor of Amazing Stories, whose name oh help me out, Paul, whose name just fell out of my head. Hugo uh, Gernsback. Thank you so much. Oh, <laughs> old age. Hugo Gernsback, the great. Okay. 
the great, uh, wonderful literary genius. <laughs> he was a literary genius. By the way, let me just recommend a book, The Perversity of Things, which is about, it came out about a year or two ago, and I can't remember the author's name, but The Perversity of Things is the name of the book, and it, it basically details how Hugo Gernsback was not only the great science fiction editor that he was, but a brilliant media theorist. And he presaged a lot of things that Marshall McLuhan later talked about. So wow. the perversity of things, yeah. Wow, I I I love I love nineteen uh, thirties there. I did my my master's thesis on magazine science fiction of the nineteen thirties, right. and uh, and uh, and my and my professor said, "Are you going to have enough material?" <laughs> that was his question to me, and I was like, "Yeah." My response was a bit the same as yours, and we ended up doing my me uh, me defending my dissertation uh, over two weeks because he just kept stopping me and asking questions. We had this wonderful conversation about Argosy and. and the pulps and things like that, and he was amazed. And of course, I back then in the nineteen nineties, it was nineteen well, probably late eighties, early nineties. Sam Moskowitz was still alive, and I was able right. to interview him uh, in person and get get like stuff right right from the man who was there, which was yeah, yeah, wonderful absolutely. Thing. One of my great pleasures was David Kyle yes. uh, and I were on The Evolution of Science Fiction. And actually, it, we were recorded at different times. But that was on like around, I don't know, 2003, 2004. But then after that, every time we would see each other at Lunacon, whatever, we would talk about that show. And, and he, you talk about fonts of wisdom. He was fabulous. I love David. And the yeah. world, I wish David had made it to 100 years old. David would show up. David came here to Stony Brook. David, David had been at Icon as as have you paul yep. and 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 i signed his book did you sign his book yes i did <laughs> <laughs> i love the guy uh the red the red blazer oh, oh. Right, that red blazer unmistakable and oh, smile my eyes. smile <laughs> my eyes are tearing up i i love yeah. that guy so much oh yeah, yeah. oh Thanks for a blast from the past, man. I, you know, any any day where David Kyle's name is mentioned is a good day. Absolutely right. <laughs> Absolutely right. Well, my friend, uh, thank you so much, and uh, and uh, for being here on Progressive Solutions. And uh, as I will try to get, I've been I mentioned uh, your your being a resource to uh, Jim Lynch, and hopefully he'll make that uh, contact with you at some point in the future. But again, uh, this has been fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Paul Levinson, professor at Fordham University here on Progressive Solutions, WUSB Stony Brook 90.1 FM and W297 Stony Brook 107.3. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did talking in it. And as I said at the beginning, I'll say again, I'll see you again back here soon. Probably not in a couple of days, but I'm going to try hard to make it better than a couple of months. And in the meantime, as I always say, enjoy. Athens. 2042 AD. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell.
You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries.